0: Welcome to Money Memoirs, a taboo-breaking interview series sharing intimately uncensored conversations about money. I am Barry Tesler, a financial therapist, author, and creator of The Art of Money, my year-long money school and global community. Join me as I connect with brave folks from all walks of life to explore their experiences with money from their greatest struggles to triumphant celebrations, to lessons learned, and unexpected discoveries along the way. These interviews are raw, heartfelt money stories. They're vulnerable, inspiring, and always authentic. These interviews are a snapshot of the personal connection and practical support you'll find in my year-long money school, The Art of Money. The Art of Money is a holistic framework that integrates money healing, money practices, and money maps. And it blends together therapeutic, body-based practices with so many real-life tools that you need to create healthy, sustainable change in your money life. If you'd like to learn more, head to BarryTesler.com. For now, get comfy and cozy for another intimately uncensored money memoir.
1: Hello, everyone. Welcome to my money memoir series. Today, I am very excited and honored to be able to interview Alethea Chang-Fitzpatrick. Alethea is a women's leadership and team development consultant. She helps people, teams, and companies increase their impact without sacrificing themselves or others in the process. Alethea is an advanced certified coach with the Gaia project for women's leadership and a Myers-Briggs certified practitioner. She's also the founder of Photo Sanity. I love that, where she helps parents find joy and connection through photographing their kids. Her background is in architecture, which was fascinating to me when I heard that and she's almost 20 years she's almost 20 years of experience as a licensed architect in new york city managing workplace strategy and corporate headquarters projects she was born and brought up in the uk let me say that again she was born and brought up in the uk she's lived in brooklyn since going to college now with her husband and her two boys currently aged nine and six and i had the honor of Meeting Alethea in Santa Barbara last May at the Gaia Lead event. We were both speakers and she had to at the very last moment um become the M C uh of the entire event, which was wonderful. And then as fate would have it, on the airplane ride back to Denver, we got to sit next to each other and We talked nonstop and shared openly and honestly and debriefed about the whole event and our experience. And it was just a wonderful, deeply connecting moment for me to have two and a half, just two and a half hours with Alethea on the airplane. And then I got off in Denver and she went off to New York City. So, Alethea, welcome to you. Thank you so much for being here.
2: Thank you, Barry. Thank you so much for having me on. And yes, what a gift that was to get to sit together on the plane. Sort of randomly, right? Because I just I just picked a flight that connected through wherever it was convenient. I didn't specifically pick Denver, but it was it was wonderful to chat with you on that flight. I remember that very clearly.
1: Yeah, me too, me too. Thank you. It was a highlight. It was a highlight of that entire <laughs> thing, and it was a great way to end it. And, yes. and we were, yeah, we were we were nonstop. Like, and I don't like flying, we so <laughs> <laughs> we were. And we probably could have kept going all the way to New York, you know.
2: I think we could have, yes. Yeah, thank you.
1: So I always like to begin by asking, so where are you in your life right now with work and family? Um, And this time, give a little snapshot of that. Let's begin there, and then we'll dive into the deeper questions about your relationship to money.
2: Yeah, thanks Barry. So as you mentioned in my intro, um, you know, I live in Brooklyn right now with my husband and two kids, um, then nine two boys who are nine and six right now, so fourth grade and second grade. And um, you know, I was born as you mentioned, I was born in the UK, grew up in England. Um, when I was eighteen I came to New York City supposedly for one year, ended up staying here ever since, went to architecture school, practiced architecture for almost twenty years And loved it for a while, but kind of had the growing realization, especially after I became a mom, that it just didn't feel like the best way for me to create an impact and use my talents. So I've really been on a 10-year journey. I actually left architecture twice. I ended up going back. I left uh, when I became a mom. I went back for a few years. I left again um, a couple of years ago. And so I've really been on that journey to figuring out um, you know what I want to do with my life, how I can best create an impact and so um, that, you know, becoming a mom led me through photography, doing family photography, then teaching photography um, to other parents, uh, especially moms, helping moms find joy and connection through photographing their kids. That was where uh, Photosanity came into play and then really moving into women's leadership and um, a growing focus and specialization in diversity and inclusion. And so that's, that's where I am right now. And what I have been sort of figuring out this year is that I love running businesses, but I really um, am not the best person to be running my own business by myself. Um, and so I've been moving into more of a... Um, CEO or integrator for hire type of role to help uh, CEOs, you know, to help other business owners run their businesses. And I'm finally kind of really feeling like I'm figuring out my sweet spot and how to bring all of my different interests and passions and and, 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 and talents together.
1: Wonderful. Yeah, when I first heard about you I knew that you worked with large companies, I knew you did leadership training and then somehow oh, I shared the picture of us on the airplane together and then folks from all my online world, like all the creative people I know and the artists, they started chiming and going, I love Alethea and I was like, Wait, <laughs> how do you know her? you know, and then then I started researching you more and seeing that you were teaching photography and you know, and you you had your own business and your own online creative business, and I was like, "Wow, okay, She has so many different sides to her, and I never knew that and Then when I heard about your architecture background, I was, "You're just an extremely talented, gifted um and creative person. you have just so many different parts that I love that at this time you've been exploring all of them since you had kids." And now you feel like 10 years in, that sounds about right, and your kids are getting a little older. (laughs) You're just starting to find your sweet spot. But I love that you explored all of that. that, Did that feel brave to do or no? Just something that you felt compelled, yeah. It
2: felt um, both. (laughs) It felt brave and scary, and I also felt compelled. Um, I think that what was it was really difficult to feel like I was starting over like I had this great career in architecture and um it, for a while it felt like I was starting over from scratch and that was um quite disheartening at times and it re- did really make me question what I was doing but I kind of just always had I always had this vision that I could you know we're going to talk about money but I had this vision that I could make more money and have a greater impact doing something different I just didn't know like I just had I just knew that was possible but I had no proof of it I had no evidence I didn't know how I was gonna do it I didn't know what I was going to do but it just felt like it just felt to me like there had to be something different out there for me that was a better fit so um I think it's really only been in this past year that I'm starting to see how everything fits together, and i you know I tell this to my clients, you know it's even when it doesn't it's always a build we always build on what we've done before, we're never starting over from scratch, even when it sometimes feels like we are, and it's an iterative iterative process, and I'm now only now starting to see um kind of the through line in everything that I've done and everything that I'm interested in and everything that I want to do and I think that you know that through line is not something that you sort of discover and then you're done it's something you continue to explore um, hopefully throughout the rest you know through the, throughout the course of my life but it's been definitely really um, exciting to <laughs> to actually see like oh there is a through line I'm not totally crazy and um, you know, having done one thing for a long time in terms of architecture, it has felt a little bit like I've cycled through a lot of different things. But so it's been, it's been sort of um, satisfying to see the the commonality in it all.
1: Okay, so I love all this because you know some of us we get stuck on. We have to be in one career for years, and especially in the states. Um, I know in other countries, people have like five, six, seven different iterations, you know, of their work, of their career throughout a long life. So I love hearing this. And, yes, I want to go right to the money part, but um, <laughs> let's, let's back up a little bit and, and transition into the money part, and then we'll come back here to talk about just how money was impacted or influenced your decisions or what you've been learning. Um, going from having a steady salary for all those years, right and then to Mm -hmm. having to that shifting you holding the vision that you could make more doing your own thing but that takes time maybe we should just speak about that a little bit and then we'll back up to family of origin and all that so is there anything yeah Yeah, because we're right here and i know this is like does this feel okay to go right into this aspect of okay yes
2: absolutely yes let's 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 jump in do
1: it okay so share because you're someone who, you know, a lot of people would love to have a consistent salary. And we would imagine it would be a great salary as an architect. Yeah.
2: Um. Yeah, so, I mean, architects are notoriously underpaid, but I had mm. received a certain level of success in my career that, yes, I was making a certain amount of money that I couldn't just turn around and, and make it doing something else, like right off, you know, <laughs> right off the bat, so yes, that was um, that was not an easy decision to make, and you know I am incredibly privileged in that I do have a spouse that has 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 you know held down the the corporate job through all of my exploration and has provided um, some of that financial stability. But the, it, it's interesting because I think that. Um, you know, becoming a mom is creates kind of a natural, almost an excuse, really. <laughs> um, I don't want to say it's an excuse because it's a very good, it's a very, good, it's a very good reason. But I, I guess it kind of creates a natural point where people can understand why you might want to take some time to be at home with your new baby. So I sort of i I would say that I. Um, I took advantage of that moment, but the truth is, it was also the recession. So I didn't really have a job to go back to after my maternity leave, and so it just seemed, in general, like a good time. Yeah, you know, I think it, it was a good time to start. It. Yeah, I mean, I don't know that a recession is really a good time to start a family, but I guess in terms of uh in terms of um, sort of earning power, it was just a terrible time to be an architecture. Um, And a lot of people getting laid off there were mandatory furloughs Um, and so it made sense at that point to step back a little bit I really was at that time confronted with this feeling that I didn't want to give my baby to someone else and I don't judge that decision to do that but for me personally um, it was really hard to imagine Handing my three month old over to somebody else and I, and I didn't want to do that. And so I think I was driven the first time I left architecture, I was driven more by a sense that I wouldn't be able to be the mother that I wanted to be and have the career that I wanted at the same time. And, um, at that time, I made the choice to step back from my career, stay home with my baby, but I also was really never the kind of person that was going to be a stay at home mom. And so pretty quickly, um, as I was, you know, really enjoying photographing my baby and really kind of falling in love with photography as I was falling in love with my baby, I was like, Oh, well, maybe I can be a photographer and make money, <laughs> make money that way, and so that kind of led to um, a series of different sort of business ventures that I would say were more an attempt to um, avoid having go to go back to a corporate job that I or to architecture to a job that I felt would require a lot of sacrifice. Um, as a mom
1: yeah yeah so i hear you know i don't i think i'm hearing you felt changed um, after becoming a mom and also the economy changed or went through a recession Mm -hmm. so simultaneously both of those were happening you're falling in love with your baby being a mom and then you just started naturally using your creativity and realized, oh, maybe, and, and decided to try that out, you know. But you guys practically went from two income, strong two-income households to one income for a while, right, or a period of time mm-hmm. until mm-hmm. you started mm-hmm. teaching classes online and offering that. Um, it sounds like, was that planned, not planned? It was a combination. How did you, cause that's a big transition. How did you both? deal with that? Can you share a little bit about what that transition was like?
2: So it was not planned and it was um, it was not planned and I and I think that ultimately that was why it ended up not being sustainable and I ended up going back to architecture um, when we had a second baby <laughs> and so when my oldest was, I guess he was four and the youngest was one, um, it became, I mean, two kids. So I think that, you know, it, it's a, it's one thing to have <laughs> two incomes and no kids, and it's another thing to have one income and two kids, um, preschool-age kids in Brooklyn. I mean, it's a completely different financial equation that became rapidly apparent that we could not sustain. And, um, you know, I think that was what was interesting. You know, that was the time at which I started to get most in the online business world also. And um, sort of the equation that I was looking at was very different to the equation, you know, in terms of cost of living, um, was very different to the equation of someone in a completely different part of the country. Who had a probably not made as much as I had previously made, but also B didn't have to make as right. much as I made right so um, so that was a sobering wake up call, I would say, um as far as what it would take- like i just i mean just you know we're we're having honest conversations about money, right? I just couldn't grow my business fast enough to um make the money that we needed to for to sustain our family in our current lifestyle and i and we you know we talked about it and um for, for me living living in New York City is extremely important for a variety of reasons um, diversity being one of them um it's a very segregated city, but it is but but there is a Diversity here that has made it my home of choice, and with that that choice, those benefits come at a cost. And so, um, after it was it was a hard reality to face. Um, But you know, four years four years later, the economy had shifted, and you know, the kids were a little bit older, and um, the picture was a little bit different, and, you know. We had two, we had two kids in in preschool, um, and we weren't sure what we were going to do for elementary school. And so, um, I made the decision that I would need to go back into architecture, and I also um, was ready to uh, give it another shot, sort of see if I could fall back in love with it an opportunity came up that was really interesting and and so I took it. And, I, and actually one of the things that I, and it was a really, it was a really, um, it was an incredible experience to do that because it actually really helped me disprove or unlearn some of the myths that I had sort of accepted, as far as um, sort of that career versus motherhood type of binary. Um, And by that, I mean that I decided to go back into architecture to see if I could have the career that I wanted and be the mother that I wanted. And if I could um, create value that wasn't dependent on putting in long hours, you know, I went back in, uh, to architecture being very clear in my interviews, you know, I I've done the seventy hour work weeks and I'm not gonna be doing those, but I have a lot to offer and um honestly I was much I was much better at my job for it.
1: So you were much better at your job because you negotiated clearer hours, um, you created Boundaries, you negotiated boundaries, you just set up how you can work, when you could work, hours and all of that in a completely different way than how you did it before you had kids and had unlimited time and energy, yeah?
2: Yes, exactly, (laughs) exactly. And I also refused to accept that, I refused to accept that I, that because I was a mother, I was less valuable in the workplace. In fact, I wanted to prove that because I was a mother, I was actually more valuable in the mm. workplace.
1: Mm. How were you able to do that? How did you find that strength, that clarity, that knowing of your value from within to be able to do that
2: um you know i I think that i I think that it, partly i I had to in order to even be able to try it. I had to go in with this sort of hypothesis, this belief that it was possible, and um, and I sort of went in with a very almost like a experimental mindset of like I have this hypothesis, so I'm going to test it out and see if it's true. Um, I think also that again, I think that the natural cycle of the economy really worked in my favor. You know, honestly, like when you you know when you spent four years at home with your kids and, you know, sort of abandoned your career and are trying to do something different, um, your confidence can really, like my. I'll speak for myself, my confidence took a huge hit to the point where as I was starting to think about looking at architecture jobs, I thought I was unemployable.
1: Mm
2: -hmm. And I started talking to a couple of recruiters and 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 I was really it, it just went really differently to how I was expecting. Like my confidence came back like almost instantly as soon as I started talking with them. But also now like the you know there was a huge demand for people with my level of experience, and they didn't care that I'd been out for four years. They didn't care that I didn't know the latest version of the you know of AutoCAD or Rabbit. They like it. They I was um sort of to my surprise, um a hot commodity. So that I mean that that helped. But I think that what I've realized is that we we forget. I mean parenting is both an amazing, at least for me, it's both an amazing and joyful experience, but it's also kind of just you know, it's 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 there's a disheartening aspect to the um Sort of, sort of the daily grind. Like when, when your life is, when your day is filled with wiping runny noses and changing diapers and handling tantrums, you sort of forget that you have these other skills in the outside world. And I think you also don't realize the 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 skills that you're building as a parent that can also yes. be applied in the outside world.
1: Yes, that second point. I'm always trying to speak to um, inside the Art of Money community when mothers are out for a few years and want to go back in or create their own work, I'm like, oh, my God, there's so much skill level um, and skill set that you've been developing, you know, as a mom. <laughs> you know, so much yes, that, you can bring, and, that you can bring to the world, yeah.
2: Yes, and there's, you know, there's there's a devaluing of that at so many levels, right? So, so you know, systemically that's dev- devalued culturally, institutionally, you know, interpersonally, internally, that is discredited. And I think for me it was really hard um relying on my husband's income and feeling like I wasn't contributing but that is also a lie that yeah. is also that is also um again part of the system that values the making of money over anything else um but also quite literally you know we've seen the the you know if if we had to hire someone to do all the things that I was doing, like that has a real cost, financial cost to it as well. So it took, you know, it it was, I had to come to that realization that I was contributing financially to my family, even if I wasn't literally um, the one bringing in all the money.
1: So you went right into my next question, which I love, which is this time where you went from two incomes to one you have babies you grow them <laughs> you know you birth them <laughs> you're you decide you know to stay home um for many different reasons right you're doing that and that's quite a few that's a few years you're doing that um you're 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 sharing a bit of your psychology the dynamic shift you were feeling, you were internalizing. You know, I don't know what your husband was Mm -hmm. thinking or feeling, but this is such a common moment, whether it's a few months, whether it's a few years, whether it's longer, where you go from two incomes to one, the woman's not making money anymore, but doing so much, you know, Mm -hmm. to be contributing Mm -hmm. on so many levels. And I'm so fascinated by the dynamic that happens, Um, when one is making more money, how does the other person feel? Do they feel like they don't have a say or a voice anymore? Does the one person making the money feel like they have all the say in spending? Or do you realize how much you are each contributing? Can you share just a little bit more about that dynamic for you two?
2: So, yeah, um, yeah. so I think that there is a – there's an aspect here that's also to do with, um, uh, I would, I would characterize it as the, the impact on, of patriarchy on men also, where I think that, um, there is a heavy systemic burden on men as breadwinners. And, um, so I, I would say that we we grappled with that, and I think that what really um, it was it was a very I'll say it was a very difficult it was a difficult dynamic to grapple with, um, and what really helped us, and it was right around I believe it was right about around the time when I went back to architecture but we actually made the decision to work with a financial planner mm-hmm. and it was it helped us so much because in addition to the dynamic of one person um literally earning you know earning more of the money um we also have different money mindsets right or money stories that we that we come in with and so um, I would characterize my mindset as sort of like everything's everything is awesome, everything's gonna be fine um and my husband was like, we are one step away from, like, being homeless on the street. Yep. And and neither very of those are true,
1: right? It's very very different. different. You are polarizing. Very, you
2: know, I'm, yeah. Yes. And, and, yes, I'm very polarizing because I think the more, like, we, we pushed each other further and further out into <laughs> those viewpoints. Um, and the financial planner... Really, just helped to pull us back into the middle, and to because um, you know we didn't we didn't have we didn't have a good handle on what our financial situation really was, and so then it was really open to interpretation. Um, yeah. You know, we hadn't planned for going to one income, we hadn't planned for me to start a business. I mean, it was sort of like all the wrong ways that you should go about it. And so
1: But that's life. That's real, just, life you know? that's real life. That's, that's real life. That's
2: real life. Um and working with a a financial planner just really like was like, okay, like let's just take a look at the numbers, plug everything in and you know, It just gave us a more – I mean, I think numbers are always open to interpretation, right? But I think just at least having a third party say, like, these are the numbers then helps us to see where we're making different interpretations of those numbers. And it's really helped us to get on the same page around it. Because I definitely will own up to a – Kind of bury my head in the sand, power my way through, kind of approach, which totally freaked my husband out, <laughs> like totally, like you know. And um, and so we've both, but but it's also not true that we're all, we're one step away from being homeless. So it just really helped us. It just it just helped us come back into come back into the middle, and. Get on the same page and have a plan. So the second time I left architecture, we actually did have a plan. <laughs> like we sort of were like, okay, we have to do this really differently to how we did it the first time, and um, and that and that made that made a, that made a big difference. Made a huge difference.
1: So many lessons in that for everyone listening, you know, and and how do we learn sometimes? We make mistakes or we trip or we go down the wrong road or we don't plan, you know, or we plan some things and life still happens. So in these moments, some couples go to therapy. I love that you guys reached out to a financial planner. It sounds like this person was incredibly helpful and was part therapist, you know, and that's my sense and we just hear you out and 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 look at the numbers with you it's so important for couples it's so common to polarize you know and that that's your husband's like feeling based on his own history trauma you know lineage where he's come from Uh that's what it feels like It, it literally feels like he's one step away from being homeless you know my husband has a version of that too i know that one um, and then you're over there going, everything's great. <laughs> you know, everything's everything's <laughs> going to work out. Like, come on, you know, everything's going to work out, which each side has its things to bring to the table, and I love that you said you, you came more to the middle, you know, and by getting a third person, it, it just brought you both to the middle where you each could see each other's viewpoints a little bit more instead of being horrified, which, you know, understandable. Yes, because our viewpoints,
2: yes. Yes, because our viewpoints were very – our viewpoints were um, to the point where it was very traumatizing for each of us to hear the – to have the other have that point of view. Okay. And, um, and you know, I think that um, one thing um, – one thing that I greatly appreciated, so we went so so my husband did the research on some different financial planners that we interviewed, and um, we spoke with two or three, I think I don't remember, and they were all fine, but they were all men, and I was like, "Can we talk to a, like can we talk to a woman?" Hmm. and I know that my husband would have been perfectly happy just going with one of the men we had already spoken with and um who and who would who were going to charge less and but he under but but, but he um, he was willing to look for a woman, meet with the woman, and see that I felt more comfortable with her and he understood that that was a necessary component of the success, so I really appreciate that he um kind of worked with me on that, and, um, Great. yeah, and it's been, it's been a big help.
1: Mm-hmm. Great. Great for you, knowing that, voicing that, asking for that, making it happen and him being willing, you know, to say, yes, I see that you need something different from me. I see you need a woman. It costs more, but, yes, I'm on board. Wonderful, wonderful. Let's go back a bit into your childhood and history, and if you would share some stories of um, how did you grow up, I know you grew up in U.K., share a little bit about your lineage, what you learned from your family around money um, that you would consider positive or negative, how has your upbringing influenced your, your patterns around money and um, where you are today? I know that's a huge question, so... This year, share <laughs> some of that.
2: Yeah, so um, so I describe myself as a British-born Chinese American. So I'm an that. immigrant daughter of immigrant parents. Um, my parents uh, grew up in Hong Kong, and they moved to London um, after they got married. Uh, my mother went, father went to medical school in England, and I was born a few years later. In London, um, grew up in the south of England in a very homogenous, predominantly white community. Is one of the very few, um, you know, often the only, but really one of very few non white um, kids. I think it was the only non white kid in the first school that I went to. Um, and it's interesting because I think what I've, I, th- I think one of the things I've realized. In terms of my feelings around money, um, is that I have tended to take on other people's emotions around money. And what I took from my childhood was both both scarcity and abundance. So you know, as immigrants, I would say that my experience of growing up was that my parents were very frugal and very strategic about money um but there was also a certain level of abundance um we were you know my father was a doctor um my mother stayed home but then she went back and got her masters and um she got the corporate job in london commuting and so um they created you know a solidly middle to upper middle class life um very very intentionally for for me and my sister Um, So I think the message was that we had to be really careful about money, but there was always money to be careful with. And so I am supremely privileged in this respect that I have never experienced um, either as a child or as an adult really that kind of fear of not making rent, not being able to pay the bills, not being able to buy groceries, not having a roof over my head. Like I have not experienced that kind of, fear around money and i do think that has you know i think that that socioeconomic privilege is partly what fuels that kind of um la 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 everything is fine kind of mentality um around around money mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. and do you feel that you know i hear i hear this but it it's different for everyone for uh, first-generation immigrants, there's a level of such high-achieving that the parents expect, want for the kids, that you take on, and that usually there's a series of, like, three or four jobs that y- you must consider, and that's it. it. Can you share a little bit about that? Is that so, partially why you chose architecture or no? So I think that
2: my father – I. I- My father probably had the choice, right, of doctor, lawyer, maybe engineer. Um, And he was actually pretty specific that he did not want us to necessarily go into medicine. Mm -hmm. Um, Architecture, I mean, it's kind of funny (laughs) because I wasn't the kind of – I was – rebellious in spirit, if not in action or appearance as a child. Um, like, no one would ever looked at me and said, oh, she looks like she's really rebellious. But I definitely had a rebellious spirit. But my parents were the ones who suggested architecture because I could never sort of – I always had that – like, no, I could never come up with what my favorite subject was at school. I was always really interested in both the arts and the sciences. I was always very sort of, like, left-brain and right-brain. And so – They suggested architecture, and I, you know, in English you have to choose a, like you can't go to college and do liberal arts, I mean maybe now you can, but back then you really had to choose a subject, Um, and so architecture felt like a good way of not having to choose a subject, but it seemed like a lot of different things fell under architecture. You study history and philosophy and art, but also engineering and math and science, so so um, that was really what attracted me to architecture. And I think that that is actually what, even though I'm not practicing architecture anymore, one of the things I've been doing this year is kind of re-embracing my identity as an architect because I think that that way of thinking in terms of integrating a lot of different aspects um, is very much a part of who I am, so I do. Um, it's been really helpful for me to sort of reclaim that and, you know, reclaim my identity as an architect,ure even though buildings ended up not being the best creative medium for me.
1: And and does this go back to when you say around money that you feel like you took on the emotions of everyone around you, and so you've been on a journey of exploring all these different parts of you um, and what you've taken on from people around you and how, yeah, say a little bit more about this concept of how you experience money. What are the emotions that came up as a kid or it could have been all of them or all the different ones that you were trying to process and what are the, where are you at today when you think and feel about money and and how do you connect the dots between um coming from a chinese family from the hong kong who is in uk and now in america or united states how, how, is that making sense i'm i'm wanting to under i want i, I would yes. like to hear yes. more about this from you yeah
2: yeah so it's very interesting so one of the things i've really been thinking about so so really so what i learned okay one of the things i've really been thinking about is what I learned growing up, which was assimilation. So assimilation is where in order to gain a sense of belonging, you blend in and um, you're not... You're not valued for your so so inclusion is when so you know um, bringing a little bit of a diversity and inclusion perspective to this you know inclusion is when you feel a sense of belonging and you also feel that you're valued for your uniqueness and assimilation means that you have the sense of belonging but you don't feel that you're valued for your uniqueness so what I learned growing up in predominantly white communities was to blend in be as white as possible in order to stay safe. So I start with that because I think that that is also where some of the, um, I mean, I think I'm also just naturally um, very empathetic or I'm an empath. So I do naturally take on people's emotions. I'm very attuned to people's emotions. But I think that part of, but then growing up with this sort of strategy of, being a little bit of a chameleon and blending in in order to be safe um, meant that my ability to pick up on other people's emotions helped me to better assimilate, um, but there's a real to assimilation, um, which is Say that... Say that again.
1: You cut out you right there. Say that there's a real what to assimilation? Oh
2: but there's a real but there's a real cost to assimilation it's both a privilege right and with as someone with lighter someone who's not white but has lighter skin i ha it's easier for me to assimilate and um Asians are allowed to uh, systemically allowed to um or are even positioned as a model minority and weaponized against other people with darker skin um and in this country, you know, African Americans and Indigenous people particularly. Um, so it's a it's an interesting place to sit where um it's sort of not sort of in between of not white and not black, um, which relates to money in that it's sort of like not rich, not poor. Like we I always joke in Brooklyn, it's like we're too rich to be poor and we're too poor to be rich. Um you have Vastly um, tremendous poverty in the city, and vast amounts of wealth. And um, you know, that's one of the things I've sort of been um, unpacking is where I where I sit with both, um, you know, with both racially marginalized as well as racially privileged. And um, how that ties back to money, I think that, you know, in the UK, what I experienced was um, a lot of resentment towards those who have money. You know, in, in, in the UK, there's more of an overt history of money and privilege being, you know, passed down by birth. In the U.S., there's more of a sense of opportunity and this idea of the American dream um, where you can you know, that rags to riches kind of story, you know, immigrant narrative. Um, but the truth is that that dream is more accessible to some than it is to others. Yeah. And so these are some of the things I guess I've been... Um, Grappling with, and um, so answer your question. I feel like I, <laughs> I feel like it I went does. off a,
1: a little off track a little bit. No, um, no off topic because I know that you're teaching so much about inclusion and diversity, and even hearing you define those terms and even define assimilation. Um, just giving the macro side of this, or, you know, um, it's so important for me to hear, so I'm so grateful. Um, Yeah, being Jewish, you just helped me understand a piece of how my parents needed to assimilate um, in the U.S. and how I've taken that on. So, no, your your tangent was not a tangent. It was actually really relevant, and (laughs) thank you. Well, it's interesting Um, because, yes,
2: I've been – It's interesting because I do think, um, well, if I could continue on that tangent for just a little bit longer then, I guess. um, What I've been sort of realizing is, you know, and there have been now, you know, there's there's, this, what we're seeing, I think, is, and and I've been really, I've been, I feel very, very, I feel like a late boomer in a way, but I'm sort of at the point where I'm finally having learned my whole life and having lived my whole life in predominantly white communities and having been indoctrinated into assimilation and having learned my whole life to sort of be as white as possible and basically to deny my race in order to be safe. I'm finally at the point of like, no, it's not just that I'm not white and it's not just that I'm not black, but I am specifically Asian American and what, what does that mean and what would my voice as an Asian American what would that look like and i th- and what i'm sort of seeing you know in a way I, like just thinking about model minority and assimilation and you know i think that what asian americans in a way have done um when you look at some of the stories that are coming you know some of the you know, there's a Asian Americans are challenging Harvard in terms of discrimination and wanting to dismantle affirmative action. Um, and you know what you're seeing is that larger and larger percentages of students at Ivy League universities um, are Asian. And we're seeing the same thing here in New York City in terms of the very competitive, highly coveted spots at, spe- at the specialized high schools. Um, are a, a more and more Asian, and it's almost like um, Asian Americans are, are beating white people at their own rules for success and have kind of set out to um, check off all the boxes in terms of what um, – white dominated culture has deemed is necessary in order to be successful and and now they you know they've worked really hard and they have earned the spoils of success and are um you know wanting to see, wanting to receive wanting to receive those and um
1: So I have a question. Can I? I want you to keep keep going, and then I have a little teeny follow up question around this. Yeah. Well, I guess
2: what I've been thinking. I don't. I don't have any good. I don't have any good conclusion to this yet. But that's kind of just how I'm. How I'm. How I'm seeing it, having myself experienced being sort of indoctrinated into this idea of assimilation, and having experienced that. That's a tremendous. Privilege, but also at a great cost when you don't when you don't feel like you can really be your unique self. That comes at a great cost, and it's exhausting. So I've also realized simulation is exhausting. Um, but we have this. So, so I'm not quite sure where that's heading. But I guess my question my question to myself is, um, how do we Instead of trying to beat white people at their own game, how <laughs> do we throw out the rules and do things differently so that we can lift up the most marginalized and create truly inclusive cultures where everyone can feel like they belong and are valued for their uniqueness and can achieve their highest potential? And so, I think what I'm, what I am committed to, even though I don't know exactly what that looks like yet, is a broader definition of success and value and creativity and innovation that is based on diversity of thought and not one majority ruling class. And somehow that's gonna tie back to money.
1: Yeah. So it's you keep
2: answering and how and what
1: we keep answering my next questions, which I love. So I keep having a next thought, next question, and you, you just go right into it. So I think this is still being discovered and figured out for you, um, and as a larger community. Um, but my question was so, what are you discovering is the, um, um, is the uniqueness, is the gift, is the strength, um, is the, how would you be defining success, you know, as a Chinese, UK, American, American? What is that for you? And it sounds like that's all still being figured out based on um, your journey and having to assimilate, or and all and all of that. And you're still figuring out what that, how you would define all of that. What's the gift? What's the strength? How you're defining success, and and where you would be taking pride in your own lineage. Have you already answered that? Yeah, I have. I- I- I think that's
2: probably a lifelong process, but where I'm at right now is really, I think, about this idea of inclusion and what does that look like. But for me, that's really about how, you know, so then it sort of, you know, I pull in my sort of coach hat, which is how you get everyone into that zone of genius, And the idea of the zone of genius comes from Gay Hendricks' book, The Big Leap, and he defines your zone of genius as, like, where you create the most value for the least amount of effort. And I've been really fascinated by that idea of finding my zone of genius and also helping other people to find their zone of genius, because I think that's how you make a better world for everybody. And we can create systems and structures that allow that to happen we are just going to have a much more um, abundant world so that's
1: that's
2: that's where I'm at with it
1: yeah okay. we could end right there but I have one last question on the tip of my tongue and then I'm, I want to read something for your website um, to end with. But, you know, here you have two young boys. So around money and around Genius Zone, you know, what, they're still so young. What, if anything, are you starting to teach them um, that's different than where you came from or it is a part of that, you know, a little bit of what you're starting to teach your young boys um, around how to have a healthy relationship? healthy and empowered
2: relationship to money? So I think um, that's going to be a process also. Of course. Um, (laughs) I I, I think that one of the things I want to share, which kind of speaks to this, um, there are a few breakthroughs that I've had regarding money, which kind of relates to our previous discussion. And one of the sort of limiting beliefs I realized that I had around money was that I had to choose between Making money or doing what I loved. And so, one of the um, sort of mantras I've developed that I, to rewire my thinking, is I make money doing what I love.
1: Mm.
2: So, I think the assimilation model is that you can't have both. Yeah. So, so that's one that's one breakthrough that has really shifted things for me. Another breakthrough was, then I felt like, well, um, if I want to make money, I'm going to have to have clients that are um, that I don't like, that are rich and entitled. There are plenty of those people in New York City. Um, so another shift I made was, clients that I love joyfully pay to work with me. Mm, love it. And the third piece. That has really helped me, um, and a lot of this has come out of my work with um, Stacey Jordan Shelton, who I just want to shout out and mention because she, her work is incredibly powerful um, and has really helped me um, kind of pull everything together this year. But, you know, I am inherently worthy. I don't And that has been a huge shift because I think – the model of assimilation is all about depending, defending or proving your worth. And I think that our oppressive systems are all about making people defend or prove their worth and telling people how much they're worth or how much they're not worth. So if I'm inherently worthy, um, I don't have to... I can, bring, I can pull my... That helps me to pull myself out of oppressing others and being allowed... and allowing others to oppress me and it creates a place of really grounded strength. And what I tell my clients and myself also is that we still need to articulate our worth, but it's really articulating your worth is really different to defending or proving your worth. And so I would say that these are sort of the three money mindsets that I would want to pass on to my boys, to my clients, to my communities. like the you know, that question of sort of what does, what is my, what, what would a money legacy look like for me, um, it would be around those three things. And it's interesting because, you know, my nine-year-old, um, your son is about that age too, right? He,
1: he turned 10 over the summer, so pretty close, yeah.
2: And I know he's really into soccer. Well, my my kids are really into soccer, and they're really into these soccer trading cards. <laughs> I don't know if that has hit your life. As well. Oh
1: yeah, oh yeah, that's my life. That that is yes. a big chunk. So of my they life. are very, yes, yeah. yeah, so they are
2: very obsessed with accumul- accumulating the cards. How much? Oh, how many oh. cards? Does oh. someone else have? You know, and, and the trading. And I you know I've definitely I've seen a lot of generosity, both like my kids giving other kids cards, other kids giving them cards, but there is. I'm seeing how my son's worth is tied up in these soccer cards and how he wants to impress his friends through his soccer cards. And so we started having that conversation. Like, your worth is not tied up in your soccer cards. Like, you don't have to impress your friends through how many soccer cards you have. Like, you want friends who are going to like you regardless of how many soccer cards you have. So, you know... So we're starting to have those kinds of those kinds of conversations. And and it's hard because I feel like there's like oh, it, it's it's systemic. It's yeah. you know and it's it's hard to feel like you can um convey a different message to what they're receiving from so many different places, but um, that's just one. That's one. Just one small example of of, of how um, how I'm trying to pass on some of the things that I've learned to them.
1: I love it. I love how I asked you about what you're passing on to your son, and you approached it in backing up and saying, "Well, let me tell you about more of what I'm working on right now, and the old beliefs or old mindsets that I'm shifting and renaming." and you know and and that just w- doing this work myself is essential to what I'm passing down, and then, in any moment that I see or I'm present with with my children i'm I'm trying to convey this to them, you know, so you just said, I make money doing what I love, which is gonna you know mm-hmm. a you know a good chunk of people listening to this that's that's something that they're actively working on, and that they internalized as well is that it had to be separate you know i get to be creative or i get to make money you know i get to do what i love or i get to make money they're they're separate you know instead of no 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 how can we do both i am inherently worthy and the third one was something about the clients you work with what was that say that one again oh clients
2: clients that i clients i love joyfully pay to work with me
1: love it did we hit on everything i i know that which i'm so grateful for that you knew some of the questions that i typically ask in these money memoirs and that you said you journaled on some of them which i just love is there anything else that you weren't able to share convey that you would like to or you've said you've shared so generously and so honestly i'm I'm so grateful. Is there, is there anything else? Or did that last piece really complete it for you?
0: That
2: last piece kind of, I think that last piece um, was, a, was a good wrap-up. I mean, I think yeah. I would just um, add that, you know, I don't think, so, so what I'm working on is really continuing to live those those mantras and really trusting myself and knowing that I'm on the right path. But I think it's it's not, you know, I don't think it's that like if you build it, they will come, right. That's not always true. But I think that for me, it's about getting really clear about who I am, what I want, the value that I bring. And as I said, like not necessarily not defending it or proving it, but being able to articulate it. And that is really what has completely um, changed the game and moved the dial for me this year. And I'm really, it's taken, you know, I've, I've, uh, it's been a long journey. <laughs> it's been a long journey, but a really, um, a really beautiful and worthwhile journey. I'm going to get a little teary now, but I'm really um, so grateful to the people who have um, supported me along the way, um, including my parents, including my husband, um, including the people who have. Um, Believed in me and trusted me, and you know, hired me and given me the chance to do um, my zone of genius work. And um, those who have um, helped me, you know, given me a, um, an audience, like people who have, you know, been willing, have signed up to to hear what to hear what I have to say. Um, it's really been um, an incredible and very healing journey that I'm really grateful for.
1: Alicia, thank you so much for sharing your stories with me and everyone that's going to listen in. It was an incredible honor. Thank you so
0: much.
2: Thank you, Barry. Thank you so much for having me. It was such an honor also.
0: Thank you for joining me with this Money Memoir interview. I really hope you found something here to take with you, whether it was a lesson, some inspiration, or even just a little grace for yourself and where you are in your money journey. If you're feeling called to wade deeper here, please pack your financial goals, soul deep aspirations, and grab your favorite person. The Art of Money is a holistic framework that integrates money healing, money practices, and money maps and blends therapeutic body-based practices with real life tools that we all need to create healthy, sustainable change in our money lives. So if you'd like to begin your money healing journey with the art of money today, learn more at barrytesler.com.